You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Mark, Caitlin, Patrick, good morning. It is December 13th, Sunday, a Sunday morning edition of the Beltway Briefing. And last week on the Beltway Briefing, we started by grading the Biden transition. Let's grade the week that was for the incoming president. Mark, I'm going to start with you. You would go to Caitlin first because I can see how enthusiastic she is for this topic. So I'm going to be very brief. I gave him an A last week, and I'm not lowering his grade this week. I think he is still doing the right thing, walking down the middle of the road with this transition. And I'm curious why Caitlin is so exuberant about regrading him after the last week. Caitlin. Look, I think that, what did I give him last week? A B? You gave him a B. B. All right. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely downgrading that at this point to a C minus. Look, I, I was a little um, surprised with some of the picks this week. This this is not, um, I was talking with a colleague the other day, this is, this is not a team of rivals. This is a team of Obama has-beens. And I was surprised by, you know, his pick for Becerra to lead HHS. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And yes, Xavier Becerra is a, you know, state attorney general in California, but has no actual healthcare management experience. Um, I was surprised to see the Dennis McDonough pick for Secretary of Veterans Affairs. This is a former Obama chief of staff who is not a veteran, hasn't served and a little unclear how how that pick makes sense. We've seen um, those of us inside the Beltway really focused. Caitlin, we love Dennis, brother of our friend and partner, Anna. Of course. Just a little surprise. Interrupting, you do get an A-plus for the talking point. Obama has been, is an excellent talking point. Sorry, Caitlin, I interrupted you for a... I'm grading Caitlin A-plus on talking points. And and the you know the other the other news of the week and sort of picks of the week for those of us that are closely following, um, there was a lot of back and forth over the pick for USDA Ag Secretary um, Tom Vilsack, another former Obama Ag Secretary. It's just interesting that that we're getting uh, sort of the the repeaters. I've been saying all along, Obama Biden Biden three um, and, you know, let's not forget, we also had some big news out of the Department of Justice that our president-elect's son is under some serious question and, and investigation because of some tax issues. I just think, you know, wait, wait, it was it was quite grading, a week in the, in the news world. We're not grading the president-elect on his son's investigation, are we? That doesn't seem to merit uh, the... Well, we're grading the week, Mark. I think it's but, fair. But... But it's it's humorous to me that if he went the other way and picked the newer and more progressive members of the party, there would be different talking points. 
coming from Caitlin and, and her view of things. It's true and it's clear and it's who he is. He is bringing in people who know how to run the government. They don't necessarily have deep subject matter expertise. I was waiting to hear about Susan Rice, Caitlin. Oh, that was going to be next on my list. Not a cabinet <laughs> pick. Domestic Policy Council? Like, Mark, please explain. <clears throat> what is with that? All right, we'll get there. We'll get there. Benghazi hearings fired up again. Come on. We'll we'll get there. We have to get there. Patrick. I'll stick with my B. I'm not, you know, I wasn't wowed by anything I saw, and I wasn't, uh, you know, I don't think anything was completely detrimental. I'm just kind of, you know, observing all of it. I'm not particularly inspired. I think some of the picks are great. I think some of the picks are not great. and I, <laughs> my comment to everyone is, I thought a lot of the early cabinet picks were fantastic. And I think that uh, it was not a coincidence because it was the stuff that Joe Biden's interested in and cares about. I think he thinks a lot about foreign policy, uh, you know, national security. I think as we're getting to some of these later picks, I think he's just trying to <laughs> take care of people he knows. And, and uh, you know, I just, that's why I think they're, they're a little less uh, inspiring. Well, now I get to go, and I have breaking news for our listeners and for the three of you. Breaking news. Howard Schweitzer agrees with AOC on something. Oh AOC said this week yeah. that there is no theme to the Biden picks. There's no message coming from the Biden picks. They don't, they don't convey a sense of, of where we're going. I completely agree with that. I think his picks, I think this week, I give him a D. I think I I gave him an A last week for cutting a presidential posture. I give him a D for these picks. They're, They're old. They're retreads. They're uninspired. They don't represent progress. And, and frankly, Mark, you can like or not Donald Trump and you don't like him. I don't like him. Okay, but there are a lot of people out there who feel like business as usual wasn't working for them. And why would you go back to business as usual in an effort to unite? That's that's not going to unite the country. So why? Why bring back a bunch of Obama-Rama people, your friends? You know them all. You were so close to The Obama administration, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't, taking people back to where we were doesn't represent a vision. It's not that hard. There there are lots of qualified people. Why, Why take Tom Vilsack and put him back at agriculture? That's like, there are lots of people who can run the Department of Agriculture. That's like... I mean, it's inconsequential in in some respects, but but it what it represents is tired, unimaginative, old, business as usual thinking, and this country has rejected that, and I don't understand it. Well, I think there's a different reading of what this country has and hasn't rejected. I think the uh, Biden Harris, although we've talked before about where. Vice President-elect Harris is in all this, uh, not not very involved, you would think, judging from the picks. I think the Biden administration believes 
that it was elected to stabilize the patient. The patient is in critical care and the mission, the first order of business is to stabilize the patient. And there is a theme, you, you can reject the theme, you and AOC can reject the theme. And Howard, you would of course be giving him an A plus if he put AOC in his cabinet, we know that. So the alternative, the alternative is not something that you and Caitlin would be embracing either. But th- this is what they think they were elected to do. But Sarah in HHS during the middle of a global pandemic with no health policy experience, Mark? <laughs> Secretary designate Becerra, General Becerra is a very accomplished public servant. He doesn't have deep health care experience. He did lead the AG case in defense of the ACA, but the first three priorities, COVID, 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 are not going to be managed by Secretary Becerra. They're going to be managed out of the White House by your friend, Howard. Mark. Your friend. And I think that the Becerra pick is as much a reflection of where the center of gravity is going to be on the COVID response as anything. But but again, I, I'm not going to give him an A-plus on that pick. And, and Mark, why on the DOD pick? You know, the Democrats were roundly criticized. Trump for picking a former general in Jim Mattis to run DOD. The Democrats in the House, because this has to go through the House, too, because he's a former general. We're highly critical of that pick. Why? Why? Why would you? Why? Isn't that just a continuation of Trump? Well, no, because the general, former retired general he picked is hardly someone who thinks like Donald Trump, if you can... Either was Jim Mattis, but he was high, he was, they were heavily critical of, of taking a former general, not maintaining the separation between civilian and military control of the Defense Department. I would not have done that. If, if Joe had called me, and maybe you know, I'll, check, I'll check my phone. I'm sure he called Steve. <laughs> but uh, but had, he, had he gotten through to me, I would have told him, I think it's a bad idea to have generals running the Defense Department. I, I agree I, with you there. I just think there he it feels to me, Patrick, like he is allowing himself to be pushed into the various nominations and and like there's like there really is no vision. It's like whoever can jockey and apply the most pressure in any given context gets the job. And that's it, it just, is a weird form of kind of musical chairs because you know, in a situation like HHS or DOD where <clears throat> people who were thought to be the front runners then ultimately didn't get it for whatever reason, whether it was the transition team not liking the way they interviewed or whether it was just the president elect, not, uh, not jiving with these people, he gets sort of forced into making sure he's taking care of all the various constituencies and then also picking people with experience. And I, I'm just surprised. I mean, you know, Austin, uh, Vilsack, um, McDonough, I mean, they're all kind of like 
older Catholic guys who <laughs> I think that's just what Joe Biden is comfortable around. And so is Bill Barr, Patrick. Yeah, you think he's gonna stay as a yeah, pro- well, pro- probably not. But but I I agree. I mean, listen, I don't think all, all picks are I'm not grading them all equally. I, I don't take as as big an issue with the Becerra pick as as uh you and Caitlin, but but yeah, to have to beg Tom Vilsack to come back to ag, I, I don't fully understand that. I, I think it it doesn't seem to put a lot of faith in the next generation of leadership. Now, his bigger problem is the congressional majorities are so slim. So he's not able to pick people out of Congress the way an incoming president uh, you know, typically has if they've got more significant majorities, or at least if if the person leaving doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. These these congressional majorities are so thin. So then you're looking to, how, how do you pick people? People who have served in previous administrations, former elected officials, um, or just people who have really strong policy expertise. But that's why I think some of the next generation isn't getting elevated. It's because they are stuck in Congress Listen. and they are prisoners to uh, an institution that most of them are trying to find a way out of. We, we've been inside these agencies. And if you've been there before, I mean, they take, they take a chunk out of you. <laughs> they are, it's a bureaucracy. And it's tough to move. And yeah, there are, of course, some advantages to <clears throat> understanding the place and knowing how it works. But it, it, there's only so much fresh thinking you can bring when, you, when you've been around before. And K- Caitlin, I want to go to you because the West Wing, this is a little bit of a different spin on things. It just feels very crowded. What do you think? Is this where we get to talk about Susan Rice? It is. Sick Policy <laughs> Council? Um, you know, as, as he's continuing to fill out these top policy positions, I personally have some question marks. Obviously, you know, our colleague Alex sat in, in these chairs and these roles on the Domestic Policy Council working on healthcare issues. Um, it's going to be interesting. It's certainly going to be incredib- an incredibly different the way it's structured, the way it's set up, the way meetings are handled, the way that that we're in there engaging these folks, it's going to be different than it's happened the past four years. That's Al- just a fact. We all know and love Alex, and she is one of the leading health policy gurus in Washington. And no disrespect to Alex, but I don't understand going from potential VP to Alex's boss as a right. <laughs> in the equivalent role as a uh, as former as a, UN, yeah. Exactly. Uh, it, 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 former national security advisor does it doesn't make, I'm not even talking about the subject matter expertise in the sense that she's more of a foreign policy person, because I think smart people can do a lot of things, but it's a very crowded West wing. Do we think he's not going to consult her on foreign policy issues? Well, she's she's a lightning rod, and a lot of that role is is liaising with Congress. And I'm curious about how that's going to look. Well, I to the point the the <laughs> crowded factor. I, I brought this up all week, and and you know you had sort of President Obama with the the team arrivals view, and then the no drama type type stuff he was trying to pursue in the West Wing. Trump, it's been the Apprentice. I mean, it's like everyone fend for themselves and eat eat your colleagues alive. Yeah. You know, with this, this is there's just no there. The, there is not enough oxygen in sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue for all of these huge personalities and egos. I mean, you've got 
all these throwback people from the Obama era in White House positions, whether it's Susan Rice, John Kerry, whoever else, who have had bigger jobs in previous administrations and how they're going to interact with their counterparts in the new in the in the jobs that they've been waiting for. And then you've got a Biden West Wing of people who may have served in Obama Biden, but these are people who have been waiting for decades for this opportunity to finally be the guy. I mean, Ron Klain being a perfect example, he is finally White House Chief of Staff. Uh, you know, and Donald and Rochetti, this is their moment they've been waiting for. And there isn't enough oxygen for all these people. There just isn't. Uh, politics is kind of a zero-sum game. And we'll just we're just gonna have to see who who kind of doesn't make the cut after the first several months. Right. Survivor. And Mark, on the pandemic. Yeah. The DPC, the Domestic Policy Council, has a significant role in healthcare. Well, and we don't know who the healthcare advisor on that council will be yet. Yeah, That's but we know who the head of the DPC is. The healthcare advisor on DPC is to be determined. It's a critical pick. The administrative CMS is to be determined a critical pick. Absolutely. Let, let the picture fill out and and two other quick points if i may on uh, on agriculture on on the retread what did we call him tom uh i think you're missing what that was about in addition to comfort obviously and friendship and relationship and experience climate he's a climate warrior and this is part of the overarching theme. You've heard it, Howard, in, in your conversations, where the question is asked of everyone everywhere, what are you going to do about climate? That yeah. is what animated that pick, I believe. And on the Susan Rice pick, it it's there is a rationale. You can disagree uh, with the rationale. Uh, but the rationale is integration, coordination, everybody talking to everybody, and breaking down the silos. Now that, as Patrick says, as maybe it was your word, it's crowded. There's no denying it's crowded in that office. But let's let's see how it fills out. Well, well, Mark, on the climate point, let, let's go there for a second because your friend and you were very involved in his presidential campaign, uh, John Kerry. Is, 60,000 votes in Ohio, Ben. Is the climate czar. Um, well, that's what Donald Trump is saying right now, Mark, by the way. Um, <laughs> different states, about the same number. So let's move past that. But John Kerry's the climate czar in the White House. You've got Tom Vilsack at Ag. You've got Tony Blinken at State. You've got, I mean, there are lots of components of the federal government that are relevant to climate. For that matter, they're going to do, as we've discussed, climate and all, and the Treasury Department's going to be right. uh, implementing climate-facing policies. And right. so how does it all fit together? And and by the way, on John Kerry, look, I, czars don't have power per se because they don't have staff. But how do you see that playing out? How do you see your friend John executing with well, all these people around government? So you know him. I do, and I have an answer, and it's going to 
uh, provide you and Caitlin an opportunity to talk about Back to the Future again. But he has done this once. His job is to put back together what he did as Secretary of State with the Paris Accords. He's the special envoy for climate abroad. He isn't going to be traveling this country talking to farmers about carbon <clears throat> neutral agriculture. That's the Secretary of Agriculture, actually. And he is reprising his role as Secretary of State in putting the world back together in, in the Paris Accords. He's a member of the National Security Council, don't forget. So it it's a little unclear that whether he's reporting to Jake Sullivan or not. I, I kind of doubt it. Well, that's but a good I, pick because he's about half his age. So that at least there yeah, we got some youth. Yeah, well, it's not unheard of for older guys to report to younger guys. It happens. That so, would be true. That happens. would be true. Yeah. And nothing, nothing wrong with that. I'm nope. just saying. I'm well, just Caitlin. Yeah. <laughs> What do you, but what but do you, I want to say one more thing here yeah. before we go to Caitlin. A friend of mine active on the transition team in the transition did observe that to uh, her, it sometimes feels like there's not a list of jobs to be filled. There's a list of people who you have to find jobs for. There's an element of that. Biden has decided, I want these people, Dennis McDonough, Susan Rice, Tom Vilsack, in my government, find them a job. Yeah, and that's not an effective way, in my opinion, to govern. Having been in those seats, that's not good government. Good government is finding people who make sense for the roles and being the being the manager in chief who brings who brings them together, it's it's surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you are, which he's certainly doing here. And and then being the commander in chief, being the chief executive, it, these just but these just don't just find people a job. That's not leadership. Leadership is. Find the diamond in the rough. Leadership is fresh thinking. Leadership is, Mark, you can't spell progressive without progress. And I am not going to oh claim boy. to be a progressive on, on this podcast. Right. You, could, you could turn back the tape, but you got to make progress. And, right. and, and looking forward, there's going to be a very progressive appointment yet. I don't know who or, or where. But I'm looking forward to the Beltway briefing where you and Caitlin but, give me the speech about how the country didn't elect Elizabeth Warren. The country it's not a zero sum. Biden. It's it's not a zero sum game. It's not Tom Vilsack or a hyper progressive Secretary of Agriculture. Right, Heidi Heitkamp, former senator from um, former North senator what, from North Dakota, would have been a great pick. Was seriously considered, but there was a bit of a food fight between the progressive wing and the rest of the party, and we wind up with an Obama has been. And, so. and there's something to be said for age. There's something to be said okay, for. We're going to be lobbying this guy, so cut the has been stuff. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. All right, guys, let me add one point on the Harris thing that Mark mentioned yes. earlier with with what role or uh, how much yeah, influence she has in these cabinet country. picks. I actually here's here's something I think we should keep an eye on. And there's still a lot of picks to be rolled out. So we've talked last week 
vice presidents don't get to pick the cabinet. Like, that's just the way it goes. But not a single Democratic opponent from the 2020 primaries has gotten a cabinet selection yet. Not a single high-profile Democrat who could be seen as competition to her for the potential nomination in four years has gotten picked yet. Now, that could be a coincidence, or that could be what her imprint has been on the selection so far. And I've heard from a number of very tuned-in sources that she is highly involved in where or where uh, Mayor Pete doesn't uh, does or doesn't end up. And she's, <laughs> she, who knows? But that's, I mean, that's just an interesting part of it. Like even Donald Trump had a, you know, a primary opponent in his cabinet. Uh, obviously we talked about team arrivals with Obama. He did. And the congressional majorities make it difficult, but I just throw that out there. That's, that's something, uh, yeah. you know, that, that could be how she's kind of, yeah. And we're going to, we're going to cover this, uh, this week in our Cozen and currents, uh, we're going to talk about about Kamala, and I have an evolving view. As you know, number my view is generally number twos don't aren't number ones. But in this case, maybe Kamala represents everything I just talked about that isn't happening so far. She's the next generation, and there's a late that's her lane i i guess i mean that's your point patrick yeah i look at listen i look to this last administration the trump administration i guess it's the current administration right now for a few more weeks uh but look he's kind of sandbagging the next generation right now by saying he might run in four years and that's just the whole crazy part of the trump world but he elevated uh for various reasons a lot of people within the party to positions that can further their careers. Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Nikki a whole Haley. generation of Republicans were given opportunities to run the government. If you go back and just lean on all these people that you know have been around, and many of whom don't necessarily want to run for public office in the future, Biden needs to be concerned about giving the next generation of Democrats uh, leadership opportunities. And yeah. that, that's just something that you're going to continue to hear a lot about. So meanwhile, back at the ranch, Patrick, you referenced the current administration. Uh, <laughs> Trump is still busy trying to be the next president, even though he's not going to be, which is just utter silliness. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time on the Texas lawsuit or the march yesterday in Washington. The Supreme Court didn't want to spend a lot of time on it either, yeah. Howard. Right. Nor which, did by the way, Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> Wasn't which, she supposed to throw the whole thing for him? Mark, you'll recall several months ago, somebody <laughs> pre- predicted that his own justices would put the kibosh on his attempt to uh, yeah. Yeah. take back the presidency. So I got to give myself an, uh, uh, a win there. But I, look, I think the thing to me about all of that is the continuing affinity for what Trump represents. And, you know, you have states filing lawsuits, you have 100 members of the House signing on, you've got people in the streets um, to some degree. And I guess what does Biden do? It, it, I don't want to continue jumping all over his picks, but 
how how does Biden make the disenfranchised feel like they have a say, Mark? Because that's what that's what this is about. It's you know, forget about Trump. Trump is none of us love him. He's you know, he's to say the least, he's he's not, you know, he's he's not the constitution. He's but 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 what he represents is is real. What what is going to be very interesting, very important uh, to see is what happens next on that side. Trump, I do not believe, is going to hold this death grip on that base for four more years. I think there are many people in that party, your party, Caitlin, coming up behind him who are interested in in having their turn. And someone will emerge as the next leader of the disenfranchised on that side. And and we'll see whether he or she is is more or less Trumpian. Can't be more, but but maybe less. What what President-elect Biden needs to do is govern, Howard. He needs to govern, and he needs to govern in a way that people who feel they are being left behind, have a stake and have a say. It's not going to be easy. And I keep going back to something every time we have this conversation. Uh, You got to see what happens in Georgia. I'm not predicting two seats. I think one seat is possible and and a big difference between 52-48 and 51-49 because then all you need is Mitt Romney, Caitlin, and, and you have a 50-50 tie. But, but he has got to govern, and he's got to govern in a way that people who feel they have no, no stake in his administration uh, aren't, aren't left behind. It's a tall order in, in a pandemic and a financial crisis and more. Caitlin. Well, he's, as Mark said, I mean, he's going to have to work with a really divided Congress. He's going to work, have to work with one of the slimmest Democratic majorities in the House for an incoming Democratic president in history. Um, he's going to have to figure out, you know, where his lane is and and how to bridge that gap. Yes, I was walking around the city, actually, towards the White House yesterday and saw some of the protests and the counter-protests. And there, as I mentioned on our call last week, you know, 74 plus million Americans voted for Donald J. Trump for re-election. And there's a lot of frustration and a lot of, frankly, anger out there that's going to need to be calmed by hopefully, you know, someone that can try t- to unite to the best to the best of, of his ability. But I hope, and that's, it's my hope, that that he is taking that seriously and that he will really think and, and maybe put a Republican in the cabinet and and give nod to the fact that, as Howard, you said last week, Republicans really, Donald Trump may not have won this election, but Republicans were kind of the top line winner as far as where folks thought we things were going to go on election day and where we ended up. And I hope he acknowledges that. Patrick, Patrick, let me, let me reframe yeah. the question a little bit. We've had now look at the cities around this country, primarily run by Democrats and for forever and a day. And are people there better off than they were 
25 or 50 years ago? No, they're not. Like, well, yeah, and who lives in those cities? Future? Has, yeah, and who lives in those cities has changed. Look, we have we have real serious divisions. Uh, it's like we're living on two different planets sometimes, you know, different news, different facts, different way of life, different way of spending your week, different jobs, different friends. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, and you just see it when you go to communities that are on the other planet that you don't live on and you kind of look around, you know, it's just interesting the context in which each side asks these questions. You know, the, the Caitlin alluded to it last week, Republicans did well down ballot. And there's many out there on their side who ask, well, if we did so well down ballot, how did we not win the presidential election? And I would just point to, you know, on on my side of the aisle, Joe Biden won the popular vote by like 8 million votes. How did we do so bad down ballot? It It is because of systems that are set up to protect, to your original question, uh, Howard, this group of people that feel dif- disenfranchised. I mean, Idaho and California each get two U.S. senators and we've got an electoral college. They, they have outsized influence uh, into the process. And so, I, I, you know, and that isn't to say I think we need to upend everything and have a straight popular vote. We're not a pure democracy. We're a republic. And I get all that. But to to just. Wow. Taking us back to University of Illinois poli-sci class, Patrick. Well to, to done. Just, to just assume that it's fr- that it's all fraud and it can't happen, and then to have that perpetuated by uh, the leader of the country and of your party, it's just increasing all the stuff Joe Biden's going to have to deal with, to Mark's point, which is how do you just tone it down a bit? Um, and that's what I think Biden's going to try to do. You're not going to get uh, you know the percentage of the country to kind of to kind of come back and, and listen to you. But if we can just get out of this pandemic and kind of tame things down a bit, uh, that that's going to be his, his greatest gift of the country. in in these next four years, listen, I'm all for that. And I'm all for rebuilding, reinvigorating our institutions of, of government. It, it's, it's critical. It's necessary. Biden's the right guy to do it. And, He'll, he's already doing a fine job. He's already doing it because he, we have no choice because there's such a leadership deficit. I just, I think it's ultimately, this is ultimately about the economy. It's ultimately about, it's ultimately about jobs and uh, economic security and feeling like you have a future and 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 articulating a future for people given the way that the economy the global economy is headed globalization and and you know i i hope we see a mayor pete in the cabinet i hope we see some of these kind of next to beijing to get him out of the country as a yeah well i no i hope we see some of these next generation folks because i think Unless you can see the future, you can't govern in the present. Yeah. It's and it's also it's also not uh, just thirty seconds. I, I know you don't want to dwell on the Texas case, but I think it is worth at least giving the shout out they deserve to the nine justices who did their job. And I never doubted, you never doubted, Howard, that they would have said they wouldn't even hear the case. And, and in fact, they didn't. 
but it's a measure of how polarized we are and how estranged we are from normal rule of law behavior that that people worried <laughs> that people worried about what was going to happen there so i i don't want the podcast to end without uh, a shout out to the supreme court for doing its job well, but it but but at the end of the day it's all about it's all i maintain it's all about economic security and a vision for for the future. And we obviously we need to get out of this damn pandemic and put put where we are today behind us. Um, but those voters are there. That animus toward the process is there, frankly, on both sides of the aisle, because people for various reasons in various communities feel like they're left behind. And, and that's that's what's got to give like we have to fix that. And I think you can only fix that if you have an eye toward the future. But we will see uh, what this week brings. This week will bring more announcements, more interesting developments. And Hopefully some COVID relief. Maybe, maybe, maybe. This week, maybe. Congress. First spring on Monday, the Electoral College vote. And then we hope, Caitlin, it will bring actual legislation. We hope that we see some governing out of Washington this week. Yeah. And, and Patrick, why don't we close with um, stimulus, which is, is hard to forecast. I saw a note in um, one of the newsletters in the last couple of days that says that nobody knows what's going to happen. And if somebody's telling you that they do know what's going to happen, they're lying to you. But with that said, Patrick, what's going to happen on stimulus? Guys, if we've only got a week left based on the CR they did uh, and and we're running right up to the Christmas Christmas deadline, I'm just going to go with what seems to always be the case, uh, which is that they will take the path of least resistance and do another CR and just get us, you know, into next year. Uh, I don't I don't know how they're going to resolve these issues yet on state and local and liability. Uh, and that will determine ultimately how much COVID relief rides on whatever package they pass uh, to get into next year. But I, I'm I'm sort of preparing to be uh, either pleasantly surprised or mostly disappointed. And I think it's probably the latter. <laughs> <laughs> I I think they fixed the benefits. Yeah, good good issue. call. Absolutely. And maybe yep. also a second drawdown of PPP. I think that's <clears throat> something that could also maybe ride along with the CR. Just very simple, very basic. Yeah, yeah. and then they come back. And- don't think the more act will pass in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, I I do not. But yeah, just I think all of us know we'll how these things tend to go. We're between Patrick and. Yeah, we are we are basically out of time. These guys want to get out of here. They know there's going to be a new administration next year. Uh, I think all hopes of a full one-year omnibus have have all but disappeared. And, um, yeah. And, and speaking of out of time, we're out of time. And we're going to get out of here. But this has been great, guys. Uh, happy Sunday. Interesting last kind of full week of the year. Uh, work week ahead of us. It's going to be crazy. And we will be back soon with more. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to the three of you. 
You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.